0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks, assistant director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hi. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, fellow Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about increasing school-based interventions for autism. And to do that, we're happy to have join us again Dr. Judy Revan. Dr. Reven is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Colorado Medical School. She runs an interdisciplinary diagnostic clinic for individuals on the autism spectrum, spectrum and developed Facing Your Fears, a CBT program for children with autism and anxiety. She's working to move evidence-based care for anxiety and autism for autism into the community where she trains school providers to deliver interventions in their school settings. Judy, thank you again for joining us on this edition of Let's Get Psyched.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, okay. so where did you or how did you learn? uh, How did you come to believing and knowing and recognizing that there is a need here to bring this to schools?
1: So, you know, so I'm a clinical psychologist. And part of what I do is work with uh, kids with autism that have mental health uh, challenges and are co-occurring mental health conditions. And you may not know that our population is at very high risk for developing a whole range of mental health conditions. So higher than other um, patient populations, like people with other developmental disabilities, are certainly greater than the general population. And anxiety tends to be one of the uh, most common kinds of co-occurring mental health conditions. And so I I started to see a lot of kids with with anxiety and autism. And... uh, kind of developed some uh, CBT approaches and uh, developed the original Facing Your Fears program to be kind of delivered in the clinic. But um, we collected a lot of data on it. We got good results, but over time realized that there are so many kids who can't come to a clinic. They can't come to a university. They may not have the right insurance. There might be a wait list that's over a year. Their parents might have to work. they can't fit it into a school day. There's just so many reasons why um, many people, not just parents of kids with autism, can't access a clinic setting, but lots of folks can not access the clinic setting. Um, and this is actually even um, more of a significant issue for um, kids from black and brown communities. And so our school-based project actually started by seeing if there's a way to reach schools and kids in schools from maybe more traditionally underserved communities. And so we were able to get funding and partnered with the schools, with our primary goal of if our kids can't come to us, but they go to school, why can't we train school providers to deliver mental health interventions to the kids who are just right there in the neighborhood, rather than having drive all the way across town to come to a clinic where it could be snowing on the way there, it could be, you know, all kinds of things. so. So the need was there because of the, the co-occurrence of um, high co-occurrence of anxiety and autism, but yet paired with lack of access to care. So that's kind of what, what kind of birthed this kind of uh, idea to work with the schools. And can you set the stage for us um, and talk about what sort of school-based interventions are there right now? So right now, the the landscape of school-based interventions, it's actually been developing for a number of years. So schools have really worked hard. I can't speak to all the schools, of course, but many schools have worked hard to try to incorporate lots of different kinds of interventions into their programs for kids with autism. A lot of the programs have focused on maybe core deficits of autism. So that means some social skills groups, um, programs around improving communication, programs uh, around improving um, motor and sensory needs. So so really a lot of focus on autism specifically uh, across ages. Um, But uh, one of the things that I think has been lacking has been a real focus on mental health. And we all know mental health is, uh, there's a crisis of mental health right now for children. Anxiety is is, um, at high, high rates in the general population. Also for for kids with ASD. And so it became important to try to figure out how do we add to what's already happening in the schools with a mental health intervention because of of we're seeing it so frequently.
2: And, And so the size of this dragon that you took on is enormous because as you mentioned, ASD or autism spectrum disorder in the schools is basically one thing, mental health, which our country doesn't fund, and another thing, schools, which our country doesn't fund, and so you're you're doing this thing in an incredibly challenging place to find any money. And so, what are some of the challenges with that? And how do uh, schools make it work when some of these needs are very expensive?
1: You know, that's that's part of what we have to work with, right? So I'm trying to figure out how do we have a program that is feasible and sustainable in a school setting. So it's really part of the science process. It's really part of the implementation process, which is, can you take a program that is evidence-based in a controlled clinic setting and plop it into a school setting without any changes and hope that that they'll find time to do it? Well, the answer is no, you can't do that. And what you have to do is work with the schools. You have to get their voices at the table. You have to work with parents of kids with autism and you have to, which is what we did initially, which is to say, tell us what you want. Is this a problem that you see? If it is a problem that you see, what what do you think is doable? How, how often can you meet with kids who have um, anxiety? Who's gonna deliver the program? Um, do you see it interfering? And if so, Um, you know, how, what kinds of strategies feel like they're sort of school friendly. So at the front end of this project, we had everybody at the table through a series of focus groups, and they told us exactly what they wanted and what would work. So we felt like we came in with a bit of an advantage of saying, okay, we can't take a clinic-based program and have it be exactly the same. It has to be iteratively developed so that it is school friendly. That helps with the sustainability of a school-based program. Because it's not me, it's not my ideas, it's the special educator who's saying, Judy, you got to do it this way. I was like, oh, okay.
2: So what makes a program school-friendly?
1: Well, you have to fit it within the parameters of their day. So lots of schools said, well, maybe we should try, should we try before school? Should we try after school? Like, we don't know. Most of the school folks said we want it within the confines of our day. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, it has to be delivered in small chunks of time. So our clinic-based program is a 90-minute program. There's no way you could take a 90-minute program and put it into a school day and say, now you're going to have 90 minutes of mental health. That's just not going to happen. What they did say to us is, we could do 20, 25-minute chunks. We could maybe do a 40-minute chunk. That would help us. They also said, you have to train and where we want you to train interdisciplinary school providers. Don't focus only on the school psychologist or the school counselor. And this I think is key because the school psychologists and the school counselors, especially these days are putting out fires every day. They go to school and they Mm -hmm. are working with students who are the highest of the highest need. There might be self-injury. There might be threats to self or others. They are dealing with those issues. So if you train a whole cadre of providers, some of whom are not having to put out fires, they are there and able to deliver the mental health intervention.
2: The unit that I'm currently working on is where a lot of those kids go when they're too acute for the school setting. Um, And I got permission from uh, a parent to to kind of quote a, a kiddo, Um, on the show the the kid was we were doing some play observation with the kid and the kid said in his own kind of role play said i'm going to pick up my son from school because he is self-injuring again that was his kind of like playing with dolls like what what he came up with and and so that brings me to the question in, in terms of thinking about this um the one versus the many of and, and the utilitarianism question with limited money that the schools are faced with when some of these kids who do have these higher needs of self-injury, which can look at all kinds of ways in autism spectrum disorder. So there can be um, kind of addictive self-injury that we we uh, I, I don't know if addictive is exactly the right word, but it sometimes responds to addiction medications. Um that that sort of feels like good stimulation to folks with autism. The school is faced with a kid like that that needs constant supervision. They're running all around, yelling, or they're, they're somehow being very disruptive to the school. And then they've got to use the whatever money they've got to fund all of the other kids. How how does this gets gets balanced, and uh, where are the pitfalls?
1: Huh. You know, that is such a hard question. Um, And, you know, I think part of it depends, I would guess, your perspective on what side of the table you're sitting on. You know, if you're the parent of that child, you are going to push for everything you can possibly push for to get your child, even if they are one in a hundred or one in a thousand of need, you will push like crazy to get what you need. If you are a school administrator and you are responsible for the budgets of dozens of kids, hundreds of kids with special needs and you have to weigh it out, I think you will be making a different decision. I mean, I I'm not on either side of those of that equation, and so I think it's hard for me to know how to weigh in. I've been asked to weigh in on some of those kinds of circumstances and have certainly worked with kids who who are the one student who's really struggling far and above all the other students. And the way I approach that is to really try to meet that child where they are, to work with the school about, let's see if this is maybe just an issue if you haven't had experience in meeting this child's needs. Let's really see if you can meet the child's needs through coaching. And let's try to see if that works. If, if all of those really good faith efforts don't work, um, after really working carefully with the school, trying to have a good coherent program, trying to make sure everybody's on the same page, if that doesn't work, I think we, we do have to go to that next level and provide kids with, um, with the supports that they need. It's not, um, you know, I, I, everybody wants to have students in the least restrictive environment, and that is exactly what we try to shoot for. But sometimes there are students who, who cannot do well in, the, in, a, in an environment that doesn't have enough supports for them.
0: As you were implementing the this program, which which group um, was uh, seemed to be the most challenging? It, there could be, you know, the parents, parents of the kids who did not have uh, autism. Maybe they there might be some challenges there. Administrators, school psychologists. What, what were some of the most, biggest challenges you faced?
1: Are you talking about in doing the Facing and Fears program? Is that what you mean?
0: Implementing it on the at the school level the and, school. and training folks there.
1: Yeah. So. Um, you know, some of the feedback we heard, well, we heard mixed, you know, and just like in any project like this, you want to hear the things that don't go well, because if you only want to hear the things that go well, it'll never be sustainable. So you have to invite all the stuff that doesn't go well so that you've got a solution for how to address it. So on the one hand, people were saying, we can see changes in the kids. The kids seem to like the program. The parents Mm -hmm. seem to note change. Even in a school-based program where parents are peripherally involved, parents can see a change in behavior, which we find really encouraging because of, one, just the challenges of generalizing symptoms from one uh, behavior, from one setting to another, parents were saying they noticed something. So that I think is is really interesting. That's great. Um, I think the, the biggest issue is probably is not going to be a surprise to you is time. Is the school providers finding a way to um to carve out the time and uh, with competing demands so being a school provider being a school teacher being a, a, a speech language pathologist school psychologist any of those professions right now is incredibly demanding with a ton of competing priorities and so to um to have a program be sustainable you have to think about what are the ways to have this have have um, kind of buy-in from the school community to be able to do it. And one of the, I'll just give you one little idea that we had as a, a bit of a solution was to um, build a program like this into the student's IEP minutes. So schools have to provide um, IEP minutes, specialized services, whether it's special education, psychology, mental health, any of that stuff through the child's IEP. You're talking so about said, the individualized education exactly, plan. Exactly. So if a child has an IEP, which most of the the kids did that we did our our trials with, then we said, instead of doing what you might maybe talk therapy for 30 minutes, here's what we'd like you to try to do instead. We'd like you to try to do this program. And for some school providers, that was a good solution. Hmm. I think we still have a lot of work to do in terms of trying to figure out how to, um, it's, it's a whole field, you know, around how do you get evidence-based care into community settings so that um, folks can can really implement it the way it was intended. But we're still working on it. We're very committed to it, um, but there's work to be done.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KCR. And we're talking with Dr. Judy Reven about bringing assistance, help, better interventions with working with folks and children with autism Al. You have a question
2: oh thanks Aaron. um yeah I, i'm curious so so on our end or i'll just speak for myself on my end i hear a lot of i don't go to the schools i hear a lot of complaints from parents about the schools and i think to myself you know no one goes into schooling for the money no one goes into school I, you know these are all people who are doing their absolute best and i I wonder what the other side of the arguments are, but I hear things like, oh, the school um, was conspiring to not tell me uh, how my kids' progress was going. Um, I don't know if that was so that they could all be on the same page or because they wanted to wait for something good to happen so that they could kind of sugarcoat it. I hear things about schools um, kind of exaggerating progress for their reports, I guess, for some kind of funding eligibility reasons, Um, what does that look like from your end? I imagine you get to hear the school side of that. And which of these things do you think are the real issues that need to be worked on? And which of them are maybe just friction that's kind of endemic to any interaction where there are different interests?
1: Yeah, and I, I, you know, it is true. I work on both sides. I work with families an awful lot. And over the years, I've worked with many families over the years to try to to help support them to get what their kids need from schools. And kind of in the latter half of my career, I've done way more work with the school settings, trying to figure out how do you support a student that has a lot of needs? Um, One of the things I, I, I go in assuming positive intent on everybody's part, because the kind of Comment that you made about parents complaining about schools, the same could be said about schools complaining about parents. This is a hard mom. You know, I don't know exactly what that means. Actually, I do know what that means. It's a persistent parent who wants the best for their child. And but, that was just for the listener. There were air quotes that Judy used when she just said hard mom. <laughs> right, right. Thank you. Um, and so I think schools um sometimes are on the receiving end of frustration and sure. of passion and of families only wanting the best for their kids. And I think you're, to your point, Alan, around, is this something that we're going to see when there's just people or who are in relationship with each other? I think that is exactly what we see. If there is a frustration in how something is going about a, a school-aged child, school age person. And if the only other environment that works with that student is either the family or the school, it's almost inevitable that you're going to say, I'm doing everything I can, but I don't know what you're doing. And so I think we all as providers have to go into that dynamic, knowing that that's a dynamic, like we have to know that that is a part of the equation. Now, is it possible that there are schools who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing? Yeah, that's true. Is it possible that families aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing with their kids? Sure, that's true. But what exacerbates this, of course, is the um, is the energy and the stakes. You know, the stakes are really high yeah. for families and, you know, and you can't blame them. The stakes are high and they they just want the best. So there's a, a tremendous amount of energy in well, that side. Yeah, thank you for expressing that.
2: So, so if I'm a a passionate mom, if I yell at my husband, you know, that might be counterproductive and and not feel good. And it's a closed system. If I yell at my kid with autism, I'm especially going to feel bad about myself. But if I yell at the school or in our case, the, the doctor or the, the psychologist who's, who's, um, you know, not who I'm not pleased with, it can feel like this kind of like a, a crusade of justice where it can it can it can be a, a catharsis that feels really good because you're kind of like feeling like you're advocating for your kid. Although maybe at home I don't know is there are there times when the consistency's not there. I imagine that might be one of the frustrations of the school setting it's something we see.
1: Yeah I think the so. the 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 passionate here here's the thing. I think we would all say Of course, people should be passionate. Like, why shouldn't they be passionate? I think sometimes the passion on both sides can shift over into something that's less productive. And then when it becomes less productive, then people start to back away and then they get nervous because of the interaction. So what I might suggest for people on both sides of this equation for the the families that are feeling passionate um, and they want to kind of push the schools to do something is to be super concrete about what they want. Like and to have clear documentation about what would progress look like in their kids, what would progress look like for the school team, what do they commit to, how can they document it, how do they keep track of that documentation, as opposed to um, kind of feeling good in the moment. You know, any of us feel good in the moment when we just kind of discharge, but that would be a productive way to do it.
2: That's you great, mentioned. I yeah, and, and I, I want to piggyback off of that uh, to a specific point. You mentioned kind of when people get passionate, schools and professionals, ourselves included, kind of back away a little bit and and, and get a little more timid. And I think part of the reason for that is that one of the, the features of our country that makes it unique is the hyper litigious Lawsuits everywhere, environment, mm-hmm. and a lot of what's been gotten done in our country on a more policy level has gotten done by legal precedent. I think I just want to, for the sake of society, <laughs> like encourage everyone that, to not have the lawsuit in your back pocket. I think one that the school system has progressed to the point where that's not always what you that that doesn't need to be the first, second, third, or fourth choice, but also as soon as I think as soon as the school or the, the, the health institution is nervous about that communication becomes much more constricted. It starts Mm -hmm. becoming a game of self-protection. There's not, we're we're a lot less able to just be altruistic humans because our hands are tied. Anything we say Mm -hmm. could be held against us. And so everything starts getting documented conversations, start getting real brief and stilted and, it seems like with some of the work that you and a, and a whole lot of other folks have done, this there are options other than that now for folks getting their kids' uh, needs met in the school setting.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, I think years ago, before there was evidence-based supports and, and um, teaching happening in schools for students with autism, I think parents felt like there was no recourse. And I think they were right. And it was a series of lawsuits across the country that really helped push schools to kind of provide for the kids that 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 needed the supports. So it was a tool that was really useful for a period of time. I think your point of it doesn't have to be the first, second, third, fourth option is exactly right. Um, there are lots of other ways to go about things. And I do think coaching and teaching and supporting our school providers. Um to deliver services to some students, maybe they never got, had the opportunity to learn when they were in their own, getting their own education. We're providing how, you know, the how to's and we can see more successes. When you are coaching these providers at the school to give these interventions, what are you hearing from these providers? And what are you hearing from the admin at the school? about the actual coaching or the the problems mm-hmm. that they about what they're seeing with the um intervention what they what so the co- the the coaching the content of the coaching is really let's talk about how to deliver this program so let's talk about how do you do um uh talk about anxiety in the context of a school how do you do graded exposure so for listeners who may not know, great exposure is facing your fears a little at a time. How do you do that in a school setting that's not disruptive? So the what we hear from the school providers is really the nuts and bolts of how do you do a CBT program for anxiety um, that we can do that, um, that can be delivered by a non-mental health provider, um, to speak to our point earlier of our mental health providers are running around trying to put out fires. The admin folks, they will say they're supportive. If families are happy and the school providers are happy, they're happy.
0: I wonder if you could just kind of build on um, the actual nuts and bolts of this approach, and you can kind of maybe share with maybe some teachers out there. What can you give us some examples of of how, what the teaching would be with, like teachers, for example? Or...
1: Sure. So the so the uh, for listeners who may not know about CBT for anxiety, it's really um, a couple of core components. We want to know about how to understand what the triggers are for, for anxious symptoms. We want to help our kids identify what it might look like in their bodies. You know, do they get flushed? Did they get sweaty palms, that sort of thing. Um, so it's the situations, it's the physical feelings. It's, are they saying anything to themselves? Like, this is so scary. There's no way I can do this. Um, and we develop, we help them develop, um, a whole series of coping strategies, things they can tell themselves, like I can be brave, things they can do to calm their bodies down, like deep breathing. And most importantly, in any CBT program for anxiety, you have to do exposure. So kids have to do the thing that they're afraid of. Some of the most common um, exposure practices that our kids have been doing have been things like um, walking into the bathroom at school and being able to use the bathroom, not just the nurse's office, but the bathroom with their class, even if the toilets are flushing and there's commotion and, and it's noisy. That's been very important for some of our kids to be able to do. It's been things like going up to a teacher and asking for help. It's being able to make a mistake without having a meltdown. Those are the, some of the things that we've really tried to target in this particular program by having kids not only learn some of the coping strategies, but really doing the thing that they didn't think they could do.
2: What does that look like? What are some of the actual fears if I go into the toilet, and there's commotion around and there's other people flushing? Am I afraid of the kind of public scrutiny that I'm pooping in front of my peers? Or is it about just kind of like the high, high chaotic environment? Or what's what's going on there?
1: You know, it could be any of those any of the above. For our population, the most common one that I've seen is the noise. The noise and the stimulation. So it's the toilets flushing, the unpredictability of automatic flushes. That's a big one. Like you don't know when it's going to flush. It could flush at any moment. It could flush while you're using it. Like nobody knows. Um, It could be. It could be all of that. Now that's not to say that there aren't privacy issues. Some of our kids certainly have that too. But a lot of it does tend to be the noise for for a bathroom. And it's so echoey and loud in bathrooms it too. Be. It can be. But the truth is, what's your option? You've got to be able to use a bathroom because. What is worse for some of our kids is if they have toileting accidents. And that's a whole nother cascade of um of social problems. Mm-hmm. And and
2: then there's and caprices that comes, which for our listeners is where you hold in stool for long enough that um it kind of becomes a plug and uh and then you have diarrhea because of it and, and it's it's a it, it takes years to undo um these kind of like people can actually stretch out their anal sphincter or their or their um anal area to the point where they don't realize when they have to poop or not and that's that can be a pretty common thing in kids with developmental problems
1: on that note
0: <laughs> that's all the time we have for this edition of let's get psyched today we talked about uh bringing interventions for autism to the community in while they're at school while they're attending school and helping schools out with that and we had dr judy Reven. Hey, Judy, thanks for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Al Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getsyched.kucrgmail.com. You can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, Please uh, like and subscribe and follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.